CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. Here's what's ahead today, and there's a lot, so buckle up. It's a make-or-break day for ride-sharing. Lyft just announced moments ago that it is suspending service in California tonight, and Uber has a few hours to decide if it'll do the same. We'll look at what this means for the stocks, which sold off sharply on the news, and we're going to speak with the mayor of San Jose about this huge story and the impact it will have on California. Plus, the two-speed recovery. We may be at record highs and unprecedented market caps for big tech, but more than 290 stocks in the S&P 500 are still negative for the year, down 23% on average. We'll dig into the disparity. And Verizon makes a bold statement where cash really isn't cash, and Taco Bell redefines dining. That's all ahead of us today, but we begin with the markets, and Bob Bassani is here with those numbers. Hi, Bob. Kelly, uh, the low is at the open. That's the good news. But we're flattish in the middle of the day. And when you don't know what to do, hey, let's just buy mega cap technology stocks. That's largely the story. You see, we're on the upside here, but just barely. Uh, S&P 500, I see only 10 new highs, even though we're just shy of new highs there. Uh, The Russell, though, still 10% below its old highs. That's not really going anywhere right now. There's your mega cap tech stocks. Apple's up 10% this month alone. 10% now safely back over that $2 trillion market capitalization level that we keep an eye on. As for what else people are hot for, I have to say thematic ETFs, anything around technology. So people are very interested in buying cloud computing. There's an ETF around that, SKYY. Uh, Internet stocks, FDN is another one. That's got a lot of good volume. Cybersecurity, HACK, H-A-C-K is the symbol there. And of course, good old technology ETF, XLK, that's the biggest of all these. The, The idea here, thematic, investing in internet, investing in anything that's online. That's getting a lot of traction. Everything else, look at the bank ETF. People keep asking me about it. It's the same. This has been this way for months. Mini rallies. Look at this. 31 to 35, back to 31, all in the space of two weeks. That is very typical of what happens with these cyclical sectors like banks, industrials, uh, and even energy stocks, energy more of a downturn overall, but just no sustained rally in any of these what we call value names. Guys, back to you. All right, Bob. Thank you, sir. Bob Pisani there. Turning now to Uber and Lyft with Lyft just announcing it'll suspend ride hailing in California at midnight when a court order takes effect, forcing the company to treat drivers as employees. Shares were down 8% at the lows on the news. They've made back about half of that decline so far. Uber is fractionally positive right now. It has not made a formal announcement yet, but warned it would do the same. Deirdre Bosa has been following this story for us as she joins us by phone with the very latest. Deirdre, what do we know? Hey, Kelly, this is a move that we have been expecting and Lyft just making that suspension official with a blog post this morning. But of course, both companies have been warning over the last week that they would have no choice but to shut down because of what it would take to change their entire business model. So suddenly, now that is true and not true. Yes, it would be an enormous undertaking to make these changes by midnight tonight when that stay expires. However, the writing has been on the wall for these companies for more than two years. AB5, the so-called gig economy law on which this all rests, that became law back in January. Instead of working to change driver classification, Uber and Lyft said that the law didn't apply to them. So now here we are, the state legislators saying that it does apply to them and them digging in here. So we're now at a standoff that is likely to result in ride sharing being effectively shut down in the country's most populous state 
also where the companies have built their businesses, Kelly. Um, the companies before have played the sort of high, high stakes back and forth in other places, but not to this extent. There's so much that's uncertain this time around. Why do you think that Lyft is going ahead and suspending rides? Is it a political gambit um, in which they hope that there might be some movement on the other side? Because as you've pointed out before, the next potential way to resolve this is in the voting booth uh, or on the mail-in ballot come November, where voters, correct, will have a chance to allow Uber and Lyft to operate differently? Well, partly, and this is why I say that this is expected, because this is kind of inevitable. It's been building over the last few years, but particularly in the last two weeks when California judge filed that preliminary injunction that said that by today they had to adhere to AB5, that gig economy law. So we knew this was coming. This was the most likely outcome over the last week. I think that Lyft probably wants to give its riders and drivers as much notice as they can. There is still a chance that the judge says, okay, here is a stay. Both companies have appealed this decision, and the judge could say, we're going to grant you a stay until that's sorted out. That's looking increasingly unlikely as we get to, what is it, 10 o'clock a.m. here on the Pacific Coast, and those changes would take effect um, at midnight. So I think we're just waiting for Uber to do the same thing if we don't see that stay. Um, but perhaps they're hoping that something does come through. But it's, it's pretty remarkable, Kelly. Tomorrow morning, riders and drivers, there's more than 100,000 drivers in California, ride-sharing drivers that rely on that income amidst a recession that won't be able to collect that. And who will the blame fall on? That's the big question. Is it the legislators for putting this law into place? Or is it the ride-sharing companies who have fought this bitterly over the last few years and really (laughs) for their entire existence? Yeah, Deirdre, it's great reporting. Um, Thank you so much. We'll check back in with you as this evolves. Deirdre Bosa following this for us. Let's talk a little bit more about the share price reaction that we've seen. Both Uber and Lyft have had a rough rough ride over the past few months. Uber's down 27 percent. Lyft is down 40 percent in that time. What happens now if they exit this huge market, which for Lyft comprises 16 percent of its rides nationwide? Let's bring in Tom White. He's senior research analyst at D.A. Davidson. Tom, what do you think about Lyft's move here? Uh, well, I think the stock price uh, move today uh, basically reflects the fact that, as you said, uh, Lyft gets a higher proportion of its total business from California, uh, 16% of rides in the second quarter uh, versus for Uber. We think probably mid-single digits of their, low, of their global rides business uh, is in the state of California. Also, you know, obviously Uber's got the, the food delivery business, which is having you know, drastically different fortunes during this pandemic. Um, then, then ride sharing, you know, online food delivery is, is, is sort of exploding as a result of the pandemic. So I think that sort of explains uh, kind of the, the differing um, uh, reactions in the stock price today. So what happens, let's say that Uber goes ahead and also suspends ride sharing, but as we understand, can continue to operate Uber Eats. But for both Uber and Lyft, if there is no ride sharing option, what happens to these companies between now and what would be the catalyst to reinstate this? Are they waiting for public pressure, for a legislative change for that November uh, issue in the uh, on the ballot. Sure. So uh, as far as ride sharing goes, I think you know both companies are going to experiment alternative models. I think over the next few months, there are some news reports this week about both companies exploring some sort of franchising type opportunity, which would allow them to you know generate potentially some revenue in the state of California. Um, you know either between now and the uh, and the Prop 22 vote, or potentially over the longer term, if um, you know if the if the regulatory landscape continues to sort of sour for them, uh, I do think though the main focus for these businesses over the next few months is going to be getting Prop 22 passed. Hmm. Uh, 
it sounds like there is a large uh, and we think pretty vocal chorus of drivers on the sides of Uber and Lyft uh, in this fight who will be, I think, pr probably pretty visible as, as, as the gig economy companies try and drum up support for the bill. The bigger question is, can uh, these companies convince the broader population of California uh, that this uh, that this is you know uh, uh, something that they should should yeah. vote for, and you know it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. One final question, Tom. What you know, you're the analyst. You look through the finances very deeply here. What would happen to Uber and Lyft if they were left with no choice but to treat drivers as employees? Yeah, I think you know, look at a high level, uh, you'd see uh, costs go up uh, potentially by as much as you know 20, 30 percent plus. Uh, and you uh, commensurately likely see a, a hike in prices for consumers. So we think you're, you'd be looking at, um, you know, not an existential threat uh, by, you know, for these companies by having to classify their, their uh, drivers as employees, but certainly it would, it would contract the size of the business. Uh, you just see higher prices for consumers. Consumers would just take ride sharing a lot less. There would be fewer use cases where it would make sense. Uh, we think it could still yield a profitable business uh, over time, but just a smaller business and Certainly, you know, the whole vision of the ride-sharing industry at the time of the IPO around transportation as a service and eroding personal partnership, uh, that would look pretty, uh, I think, tough to achieve uh, if, uh, if they're forced to uh, classify drivers as riders, uh, employees. All right, Tom, thanks very much for your time today. We appreciate it. Tom White from DA Davidson. Again, Lyft shares down about 4%. Uber still fractionally higher. They're slightly less exposed to what happens today. Yesterday, the mayors of San Jose and San Diego issued a joint statement urging California to avoid a ride-sharing exodus by granting Uber and Lyft's petitions to stay this injunction. The mayors are saying California can choose to implement solutions that lead the innovation economy or to be led by others, especially with nearly one million gig workers hanging in the balance. Joining me now is San Jose Mayor Sam Licardo. Mr. Mayor, it's great to have you here. Uh, what happens to San Diego with no ride sharing tomorrow? Good to be with you, Kelly. Uh, I'm actually the mayor of San Jose. But I'm sorry. I'm sorry, San no Jose. Worries. That's how you know I'm an East Coaster. Please go ahead. Of course, no worries at all. But, you know, we're the mayors of the two largest, two of the three largest cities in the state. And what is true throughout the state is we've got a half million uh, drivers for Lyft and Uber who are no longer going to be earning incomes at a time of double digit unemployment, as we know throughout the country. It's a desperate moment. And so we simply don't want to see more people going without income, particularly when we know that there is a negotiated solution to be had here and one that can enable on-demand platforms to continue to prosper as we help protect workers, and that is with portable benefits and other kinds of innovation. Yes, so let's talk about that, because right now this is being portrayed as the option for these companies to either treat drivers as employees with benefits or to treat them as independent contractors without them. What would this third option provide, these portable benefits, and how feasible is it to get past? Well, we need to clearly move beyond these, this rigid dichotomy to this, this third way. And a portable benefit fund would essentially be paid into by the companies. The state could mandate that. And we've got several states throughout the country that are looking at this very solution. Uh, the dollars would stay with the driver or with the worker as they go from company to company. As we know, uh, many drivers are actually on multiple uh, services, multiple apps. So they may be delivering for DoorDash or driving for Uber. And either way, the dollars stay with them. They can use it for health care. They can use it for paid time off, whatever they choose. Uh, but they have the flexibility and they keep the dollars. Uh, in addition, you know, there have been other kinds of offers being made out there in addition to portable benefits around collective bargaining that could be had industry-wide, uh, around commitments, around safety, yeah. uh, and 
workers' comp, a whole host of things. Let's get to the table and negotiate this. Still, it, it's unclear as though that's going to happen anytime soon. And so you're left with either these companies being forced to change their business models or maybe going uh, to voters in November and getting basically an exemption, neither of which would solve the fundamental problem that you're describing and would leave all the other industries affected by AB5 without recourse to some kind of portable benefits. So what happens if there's no change? Uh, this would be an opportunity to offer that third option. It just doesn't look like that's uh, on the table anytime soon. Well, if it doesn't happen here in California, I'm confident it's going to happen in New York or Illinois or some other state. It would be a shame that since we are uh, the birthplace of the innovation economy in so many ways uh, that we would see this innovation have to start somewhere else. But I think this is ultimately where the country needs to go because you simply can't have an on-demand platform that provides ubiquitous service uh, if you're dependent on having enough demand to be able to justify paying someone to work an eight-hour shift for that period of time. You can't serve those peak moments when you know the, the football stadium is emptying out or, or when the bars are emptying out if you know you need to have enough demand for a full eight hours. Uh, you're not going to be able to serve the suburbs and the rural areas. You're, you're just not going to be able to serve a lot of the geography outside of dense urban areas. And so I think ultimately this is where we're going to move. The question is, uh, who's going to move there first? Yeah, no, and I appreciate you drawing some attention to the issue, especially with this riding hanging in the balance today. I just want to ask you before we go, I believe the wildfires were threatening almost your city limits over the past yeah. 24 hours. What can you tell us about that? And by the way, on a, in a year in which these budgets are already under so much stress. Yeah, we, uh, the only thing we haven't seen is a Sharknado uh, right. here in California. Uh, we've got a quarter of a million acres in the Bay Area that are in flames. And close here to San Jose, a city of a million people, obviously a lot of folks are concerned. We've evacuated a lot of people. Uh, and uh, we're going to have a very tough summer we know ahead with wildfires and high heats. Yeah, absolutely. And the population has so much already to deal with this year. Mayor, thanks again for joining me and explaining uh, the issue to us. We'll see what happens. Great to be with you. Mayor Sam Licardo of San Jose, California, joining me today. Still ahead, a coalition of state attorneys general are threatening to sue the Postal Service, even as Postmaster General DeJoy walked back some of his controversial plans ahead of the election. We're going to talk to California's Attorney General Xavier Becerra about the state of that suit and more. Plus, the attention may be on new records and $2 trillion companies, but look under the surface. The market isn't as healthy as the headlines would suggest. We'll look under the hood next. And it's finally here. After more than a year of speculation and talk, Airbnb files for an IPO. Why now? And will investors buy in with travel nearly at a halt? That's all ahead. This is The Exchange on CNBC. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome. 
Welcome back way up there. Uh, take, take a look behind me at what's going on with the stock market today. We have the market erasing earlier losses that we saw after that surprise jump in the jobless claims last week. Uh, the Nasdaq is definitely leading the way. It's up half a percent. The other major averages just about unchanged. Now, this rally overall is continuing despite concerns about the economic recovery. Look at the S&P 500. 295 companies are still negative for the year, and 203 of them are down more than 20 percent still from their 52-week highs. What's causing this disconnect between the haves and the have-nots in this market and economy? Joining me now are Kim Forrest, the Chief Investment Officer at Boca Capital Partners. Michael Kushma is Chief Investment Officer for Global Fixed Income at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. And Stephen Stanley is the Chief Economist at Amherst Pierpont Security. So it's great to have you guys all here. Kim, I'll begin with you. I, you know, yes, some are doing very well, but many are not. How is the market overall continuing to march forward given that? Well, I think investors have said uh, we're going to look beyond uh, what's happening in the, in the areas that we know are not doing well. We're going to focus on growth because that's what the market does. And it's rewarding growth tremendously. And if you have any of those huge momentum stocks, you are hip, hip, hooray. And if you're not, you are waiting for your day, I guess. Well, Stephen Stanley, let me turn to you and ask as well if the kind of setback in jobless claims today represents a broader setback in the economy or not. Yeah, I, I, I'm skeptical. I mean, we've seen tremendous volatility in the claims numbers. Uh, they were down 500,000 over the prior two weeks, and then we re retraced about a third of that today. I think there's a lot more volatility in the claims numbers than there, are, than there actually is in the overall labor market right now. We're seeing gradual recovery in the labor market, still very high unemployment. But, um, you know, I do think that we're still making progress and it's just it's just tough to get a good read from these claims numbers right now because of all the craziness going on with the benefit program. And Michael Kushma, it's interesting that bond yields remain so low. They've come back a little bit. Uh, but why do you think that real yields, for example, have been at such low levels, even though uh, the uh, economy, as we've talked about here, has had some uh, somewhat of a V-shaped recovery. The, the stock market certainly has. Why the bond market just continuing to be so moribund? Well, I think first you are right that it's very unusual to have a situation where you're coming out of recession, and we are coming out of recession as Q3, Q4 GDP growth should be quite quite strong after the weakness and, 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 debt and big downturn in Q1, Q2. And it's very unusual to have yield not only stay low and not go up, but go down as they did in July and end up almost at new all-time lows. So that's very unusual. And the question is, why is it happening? I think it's in confidence that the Fed has changed their game plan relative to previous um, years and decades and that they are credibly trying to boost their inflation, the inflation rate in the country, and they're credibly, so far, the market believes them that they will not change interest rates for several years. So we run relative some, some models based upon volatility in the market, the expected path of short-term rates and things like that. And 10-year rates you know, somewhere below 1% do not look out of line with those fundamentals if you truly believe the Fed is going to keep rates down at zero levels for one to two years into the future. Yeah. Stephen, do you expect more monetary policy action from the Fed and, and, and Congress? Do you think the market is demanding that or not? Well, it's interesting because usually monetary policy is the main cyclical uh, impetus on a policy front, but really it's been fiscal policy that's been most effective uh, this year and I think what's most needed in the immediate future. Obviously, with Congress kind of bogged down right now, we we really need to see Congress come back and, 
and uh, extend some of these uh, main programs, the unemployment benefits, the PPP, maybe even another round of stimulus checks. Um, the Fed has kind of done its thing, and it, I think it's likely to just stay where it's at, which is incredibly easy uh, for quite a while, but not much more that needs to be done in, yeah. in terms of new initiatives. All right, fair enough. So, Kim, that brings us back to your investments. You're sticking with technology. Are there any other areas you think investors can reliably turn to for growth? Um, I think tech is easy because um, not only is it in the short term, the at-home trade, right, because we're all buying stuff to uh, make sure that we can do our business at home and do our learning at home for uh, children, but also out further into uh, time where you have trends like 5G, uh, where that is uh, holding or should hold up um, the revenues of technology. So I, that's where I'm going to um, stake my uh, bets and tell you, you should too. Yeah, you're planting your flag on the tech moon, so to speak. Kim Forrest, yes. Michael Kushma, Stephen Stanley, thank you all for talking about the markets and the economy today. We appreciate it. Let's dig more into the weekly jobless claims figures, which did jump back above a million last week. The president promised unemployed Americans an extra $400 a week in benefits. But where you're unemployed right now makes a big difference in whether you get any of that and when. Rahel Solomon has more for us. Rahel. Hi, Kelly. So, yes, so Arizona on Monday became the first state to start making those payments, $300 per week. Eleven states have been approved, but Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin says that 19 have applied. South Dakota right now the only state to say that it will not apply, at least so far. The governor there citing the state's quick jobs recovery. So the money for the Lost Wages Assistance Program, that's part of a FEMA grant, and it requires that the recipient be getting at least $100 a week in state unemployment. Kelly, that's one reason some states are finding this really difficult to roll out. Arizona's minimum unemployment benefit is actually more than $100. So anyone currently unemployed qualifies. That's why it was able to get this money out the door so quickly. But then consider Colorado, where the minimum is $25. So officials there have to sort out who qualifies, who doesn't. They tell us that'll take until mid-September to start paying. And another issue for states is how modern their unemployment systems are. Some may have to build a system that pays out this benefit, further slowing payments. So some labor economists and experts say that this fragmented rollout that we're seeing is really creating, Kelly, an unfair unemployment system. Yeah, and that's fascinating as to why Arizona is able to do it more quickly with that, you know, somewhat arbitrary threshold. Rahel, thank you very much. Rahel Solomon with all the latest. Coming up, while big alcohol companies have been struggling, alcohol delivery service Drizzly has seen sales increase 350 percent this year. They just landed a new round of funding. We'll hear from the CEO ahead. Plus, this stock is up more than 300% off the March lows, up 60% in just the past month. It's the next name in our Crowded Kings segment. We'll reveal it ahead. We're back in two. Welcome back. A lot of headlines today. Let's check in with Sue Herrera for our news update. Sue? Hello, Kelly. Hello, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. Colombia's president, Ivan Duque, is asking the U.S. to extradite Salvatore Mancuso. He is the ex-paramilitary boss accused of war crimes and violating human rights. He is currently in U.S. custody after being convicted of drug trafficking in 2008. Mancuso's lawyers are seeking his deportation to Italy, where he is also facing drug trafficking charges. 
WeWork's disgraced ex-CEO Adam Newman continues to unload his pricey real estate portfolio. Most recently, he and his wife sold one of their New York estates for $3.3 million. The couple also listed one of their Manhattan properties for $37.5 million and a Bay Area residence for $27.5 million. And experts are recommending people wear masks in public bathrooms because... Get this, flushing not just toilets, but now urinals can release inhalable coronavirus particles into the air. The flushing of urinals can generate a, quote, alarming upward flow of particles that travel faster and fly further than particles from a flush toilet. Okay. I mean, was Ew. anyone not wearing a mask in these? Ew. This is the first place I'd wear a mask. I just... Yeah. <laughs> I think we just need to move on. I think so, too. And maybe get less vigorous flush on some of those <laughs> yes, urinals going. Indeed. Uh, let's move along, shall we? Today's Crowded King is what we're going to talk about now. And the name is Plug Power, ticker PLUG. This just recently was at all-time highs. Here are some of the stats about it that tell you just how crowded how much momentum this name has. The purple line behind me is a 50-day moving average for the stock. Doesn't look like a huge amount right here. Plug is actually 60% above its 50-day moving average. That's well higher than some of the names we've looked at so far this week. It's RSI, that relative strength index, 75. Remember, levels above 70 generally indicate overbought. Here's another gauge you can look at now. Interest on Robinhood, even though this is a $5 billion market cap company, it is number 13 in the top 20 holdings at Robinhood. So how has the name uh, the stock performed so far this year? How about up 333% year to date and up 570% off the 52-week low? So it's more than sextupled, uh, to use a phrase. As I mentioned, it's on the smaller side. The market cap is about $5.2 billion even after this run-up. But check out its yearly low. Plug, which is now trading just under $14 a share, was at $2.06 back at the lows in March. Still ahead, we're going to speak with California's Attorney General about its potential lawsuit against the Postal Service and about Lyft's decision in the last hour to suspend service in the state tonight. All that and much more. Plus, Airbnb's plan to go public. Palantir is leaving California and Taco Bell is getting a pandemic revamp. That's all in rapid fire. Stay tuned. It's back right after this. Welcome back. It's time for Rapid Fire. Let's catch you up on a few stories today that should be on your radar. Here to break down the headlines are Brian Sullivan, Rahel Solomon, and Robert Frank. Welcome one and all. First up, Airbnb has confidentially filed to go public. I mean, in all years, in all years, it's been a rough year, of course, for the short-term rental company, the travel industry as a whole. The company privately valued at $31 billion before this year. That number has dropped to about $18 billion, Robert, after its most recent funding round in April. What do you make of it? Well, look, this was the story of the comeback, and that'll be their narrative, that they really, things look really dire in May. They laid off a quarter of their workforce. It looked like no one was traveling, so the whole Airbnb concept looked like it was going to suffer. And, and then they came back because people didn't want to fly. They couldn't, they couldn't fly. They wanted to stay close to home. So they've been doing really well sort of post-July, and now they're going to take advantage of that with an IPO. My question is what the appetite for investors will be for a company that, that doesn't make a profit. In the first nine months of last year, they lost something like $300 million dollars. 
I don't know what they're doing this year, but they're saying revenues this year will be half of last year. Yeah. So I, I just don't know whether investors are going to really care or whether they say, look, this is a new business model and it's here to stay. Although, Brian, their dynamics you know, financially have been a little better than competitors. I think they considered a direct listing for a while as a result. And interestingly, there seems to be a deadline because so many of the employees have stock options that will expire in the fall, basically be worthless if they don't get this IPO out the door this year. They got to do it because that's how you pay the early level employees. Peter Thiel, who was one of the early investors through his founders fund in Airbnb. And by the way, the next story we're going to do as well. Mm. They want to get paid. Let's forget everything you learned in Montessori school. Sharing is now a bad <laughs> word. All the sharing economy we talk so much about, you want to avoid sharing. Sharing in a pandemic is not what you want to do. Airbnb, hopefully going to shift their model. But here's the thing, and you did it on the Lyft story as well. Don't underestimate the regulatory risk around Airbnb as well. If mm. California can come out and basically shut down Lyft and Uber, the hotel lobby is huge. They've been going after Airbnb for a long time. There is some regulatory risk here as well that maybe the model doesn't work in every city. That's interesting, Rahel. You think they have a solid future? Yeah, I think they do because what they're seeing is that while bookings are plummeting in major cities like New York, uh, they're really increasing in rural areas. You know, we had some reporting on our website uh, where a woman who ha hosts two uh, sites outside of Austin in like rural suburban Austin said that initially while she saw a hit, she said now she's booked through October. She's even been raising her prices to try to slow down demand. Hmm. So I think while people aren't necessarily traveling as much to New York or San Francisco these days or really densely populated areas, they are wanting to get away from the city to maybe more urban or rural areas. Yeah, so I think true. it works for them. And the CEO has been insistent this IPO is happening and more evidence today that it certainly is. Let's talk about Palantir as Brian referenced. Palantir Technologies is moving its headquarters from California's Palo Alto to Denver, Colorado. The security and data company CEO Alex Karp back in March had slammed what he said was the, quote, increasing intolerance and monoculture of Silicon Valley. Brian, but it's not clear just how many of these 2,500 employees will be affected by the move, at least immediately. I want to be clear. First off, Alex Karp hasn't lived in California 15 years. He lives in a barn in the middle of nowhere in New Hampshire. That's true fact. Number two, I grew up in California, born and raised there until high school. I love the state. But you think about what they're dealing with. It's not just what he calls the monoculture Silicon Valley. It's the cost of housing. Mm -hmm. They pay their employees, as we just talked about, in equity, not in actual income. It's hard to make rents. Number two, you got heat waves, blackouts, record droughts. Fires, PG&E, there's a California trades on the weather. And when the weather goes haywire like it has been, it loses a lot of its attractiveness. Again, California, I love you. I was born in Los Angeles. I grew up in Encinitas, California. God bless you. But you got to fix the state. Yes, you came to New Jersey where the financial profile and weather is so, so much, much better. better. <laughs> I went to Virginia. I went to Virginia, <laughs> Kelly, your home state, which I still love. Yes, the Old Dominion. I will. I know. This man, Shenandoah Valley, you can't beat it. Robert, anything you'd add to that? Yeah, just to pick up on Brian's point. So the average cost of a house in Palo Alto is $2.75 million. That's the average. The average in Denver, where they're going to move, is $460,000. The tax rate in California is 13.3. In Colorado, it's 
enough said. I mean, the cost of living, the cost of housing, yeah. with re remote work right now, you can go anywhere. So why put your employees in a high-cost state? Dad, still, they better move to Denver now. My sister lives out there. I mean, it's quickly becoming mini California, price-wise, culture-wise. Anyhow, Verizon is offering the entire Disney streaming bundle now. That's Hulu, Disney+, Plus, and ESPN+. Plus. Verizon's now offering that for free to some of its unlimited wireless customers. By doing so, they're making a statement that the economics of the old pay TV, which they have with Fios, no longer makes sense. One company executive telling CNBC that, quote, the current value chain of the media business is not working. It's broken. Rahel, ouch. You know, I just, I'm so amazed at how fragmented media is becoming. I just learned something today, Kelly, about one of the, my own companies. So apparently with T-Mobile, you now get um, Netflix for free. It's, it's all so fragmented. Hmm. I had no idea. So right. I, this, this has been a very enlightening rapid fire for me, Kelly. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, is, it is becoming very fragmented. And it, it's hard to know even nowadays what comes with what and it's just all it's all too much i totally agree if you try to figure out you know you want to watch a movie you have to figure out where you can find it first if you have the app and then how you subscribe to it i miss the old days yeah i know robert if only there was oh, one on, way to on, aggregate all of these me... channels together into one price if only. package go ahead brian the... oh, no i'm sorry to jump in i was going to say let's not get all in love with the press release this is not <laughs> free they love to use that word we're using their word it's not. It's only available on their two most expensive plans, play more and get more. So if you want a cheaper Verizon plan, you're not getting this. So the free is actually you paying for premium gas. You know what I mean? You're probably yeah, paying but, for it on the back. Yeah, but but Brian, still, it it's tells still, you, Robert, that, that that's that plan what's is premium. Only 45, yeah, it's only $45 for the premium plan, which is not a lot given that this bundle, Disney Plus, ESPN and Hulu itself, Cost twelve ninety nine a month, so it's really a thirty dollar plan. Um, so it's pretty cheap. You're getting a ton of stuff. I just don't know if it drives sales. I mean, look at uh, AT and T and HBO Max. I don't. I don't know that that's really driven sales. And then do people really? keep subscribing to this stuff after the free period runs out. Disney Plus is different. I'm, I Typical. mean, when I, I have Verizon, um, the unlimited or mo, what, my neighbors, when they realized that, <laughs> that we would get Disney Plus for free, they were like, Kel, come on, give, you know, share the wealth, share the wealth. We want to watch the catalog. I do think it's a driver. I do think it tells you uh, that the world is shifting. But speaking of which, let's talk about Instagram's new feature that they're hoping will keep users hooked on the platform. Suggested posts. Here's how it works. After scrolling through your feed, you see an alert saying you're all caught up. But now Instagram says it'll use that space for suggested posts for users to view, including ads. Rahel, I don't think I've ever seen that okay. come up. So I've actually never seen that come up either, and I feel like I do a lot of scrolling. But yeah. yes, apparently once you get to the bottom of 48 hours, it says you're done. But Kelly, what's really interesting is this could be taking yet another page out of TikTok's book. We know just recently they launched Reels, but apparently this is the same thing as TikTok. There's just an endless supply of content, <laughs> and it never runs out. So for Instagram, it's a win-win. They keep you on the site more space to monetize, more space for ads, and, you know, another hint, hint, hit at TikToks. So exactly. Win, win for them. Brian, what would you say? Well, first off, Robert Franken is facts and stats knocking me down in that previous segment. He won that round. I'll give you that, Frank. I'm coming at you back. Number two, I'm not facts. I'm not the guy, I'm not the guy to ask about Instagram. I just post music recommendations at Brian Sullivan. I've got a great music library. Check it out, folks. Otherwise, I have no opinion on this. Wait a minute. Okay, so Are you're we not just the like guy. throwing out our names yeah. now? Because you're I'm not at the Brian guy. Sullivan. But follow me anyway. Uh, go ahead, Robert. 
<laughs> no, I mean, look, I defer to Rahel. She's the queen of IG here. And, and by the way, I agree with you. I had no idea there was an end to the feed. That's like the end of the earth. I didn't know that existed. So yeah. that was news to me. I thought beyond that lay dragons, uh, but apparently now it will be ads or suggested <laughs> posts. Like, is this really a huge change? Like, come on. Uh, finally, before we go, Taco Bell is getting a pandemic revamp. They are unveiling a new restaurant design with more drive throughs yeah. as the pandemic permanently shifts how consumers are ordering. So this new layout is two drive throughs pickup shelves, curbside pickup, more technology in the kitchen. Two company-owned locations are expected to debut this in the first quarter of next year. But, Brian, this tells us this is going to be a permanent shift in the fast food experience. Yeah, it's not a run for the border. It's a drive for the border there. We, you might remember about a month ago on this rapid-fire segment, you had a really smart guy who hosts Worldwide Exchange on in the morning who said, <laughs> don't be surprised for more restaurants to go drive through only yes, in the future. Yes, Why I would you have an inside when, yeah, you remember that? When you could have the drive through only, now we're seeing these double-decker drive throughs not, of course, vertical, but horizontal that are going through. This is a big deal. It's been a big change as well. And they're going to have to have longer parking lots because every McDonald's or Taco Bell I see, as I tweet, tweeted out, has about 50 cars in it yes. all day long. Rahel, I was in a, dr- a couple of Chick-fil-A drive throughs lately. One was about a mile long. This was a, a newly expanded one with all sorts of signs and way stations. The other I was in for so long, I, I started crying at the end of it. <laughs> oh. I mean, I went for breakfast. I, I mean, ordered for breakfast, but I didn't get there by 1030. So the order was, no, I was there, but I couldn't get to the... You know, Kelly, they, it is this revamp the is happening with Chick-fil-A. But to Brian's point, I will say actually Wedbush actually just upgraded Shake Shack on a similar premise. They're doing the same thing. So uh, Brian, on this off occasion, may be right that, yes, we are seeing more restaurants uh, start to install these uh, drive throughs and, and locations that just make it much more accessible in this post-COVID world. To me, Robert, what's interesting about this is the cost of doing this. These are major, major overhauls. So if they're committing to it, it tells you they think this is... Good. It's happening permanently. There's a lot of benefits to be had by rolling it out quickly and that we are going to see more companies do the same. And that's why Taco Bell is calling them concierges and bellhops because it's really <laughs> expensive to do this stuff. I just have a question for Brian. If this is a double-decker drive through how does that even work? Do you, like, climb on the top of your car to get your taco or you get – I don't – what does okay. that even mean, see, Brian? Double-decker. I, I see. It's, I shouldn't use double-decker. It's horizontal. The two, in, not <laughs> vertical, side-by-side, oh, okay, Robert okay, Frank. I know okay. you're in a penthouse. Oh, okay, yeah. I know you're in a penthouse in Manhattan, and, you're, and, you're, and your driver has <laughs> no. never been to a drive through Okay, That's but let fire. me be clear. In Breezewood, Pennsylvania, <laughs> I swear I saw 500 cars double-wide at a McDonald's drive through and the same thing happened, Kelly. 10.33, yes. they stopped serving breakfast. Oh, it's the worst. And they offered me a quarter pounder. 10.33 in the morning? No thanks. I'm not afraid. I'm not too proud to admit I cried, and then I got some chicken nuggets. Uh, guys, thank you all very, very much. I for cry every day. Today. <laughs> Brian Sullivan, Rahel Sullivan, and Robert Frank. You can find them all on Instagram. Coming up, California's Attorney General Javier Becerra is in a multi-state coalition threatening to sue the post office ahead of the election over changes that could upset the mail-in voting. He joins us after this quick break to discuss that and more happenings in the big state of California. Stay with us.
Welcome back to The Exchange. A multi-state coalition threatening to sue the United States Postal Service after Postmaster General Louis DeJoy announced controversial changes ahead of an election that is expected to rely heavily on mail-in ballots. DeJoy has since backed off those changes. Is it enough to satisfy this group of attorneys general? Joining me now to discuss what's next for that coalition is California Attorney General Javier Becerra. It's great to have you here, sir. Are these uh, still planned, these charges? Kelly, thanks uh, for having me. Uh, we're moving forward. We have to believe that it's the deeds that count, not the words. The words were scary enough to begin with. Uh, now that those words have changed a bit, it doesn't change the fact that the deeds are still outstanding. And we want to make sure that when everyone votes, their vote will count, whether it's in person or by mail. What would the lawsuit accomplish and when should we expect it to be filed? Uh, today, the lawsuit should be filed. Uh, we are joining with the state of Pennsylvania and several other states. Uh, Attorney General Josh Shapiro in Pennsylvania will be filing that uh, lawsuit today. And what we're essentially doing is making sure that the uh, federal government, the administration, and the Postal Service abide by the law. Uh, Postmaster General DeJoy pretty much admitted that what he was trying to do was against the law. And we just want to make sure that now he will follow the law. Correct. So let's talk about the issues surrounding mail-in ballots for this election. Uh, this is the states saying that the U USPS is dropping the ball. The USPS um, and other critics have said it's the states who have set the deadlines too close to Election Day. In Michigan's case, for example, you can request a ballot the Friday before the election, and we all know there's no way that ballot could be mailed to you, completed, and then mailed back in by the deadline. So should your partner states all be moving back their deadlines to both request and then return a mail-in ballot? Kelly, let's remember first and foremost that the Constitution gives the states the prerogative, the rights on how to set the process for those elections, not the federal government. And remember, too, that the states have relied on the normal course of business that the Postal Service has operated under for decades. And so when they pass the law, for example, in California, you can submit your ballot so long as it's postmarked on Election Day. Even if it arrives a couple of weeks after that, it still will count. And so the states make accommodations. But the only uh, entity that's making a change here unlawfully is the U.S. Postal Service. The states have acted according to the law and, by the way, according to the Constitution. But since we're going to see so much more mail-in voting this fall than we've ever seen before, especially for a presidential election, in California's case, like you said, um, you can receive the ballot up to 17 days after the election and have it count. What if the country is waiting 17 days for the outcome of the presidential election? Well, we did that in 2000, right? Uh, this is a democracy. We want to make sure every vote is counted. And so long as every valid vote has an opportunity to count it, we can assure ourselves that the right person is taking the position. And so uh, I think what counts is that we know that we have a process that's fair and has integrity. Everything else that uh, is beyond the point. We want to make sure those votes are counted. And the, again, the states have a right to determine how they will go about that process. And the federal government should not be changing the rules of the game midstream to try to impact that. And that's why I believe Mr. DeJoy had to back away from what he did, because the, the plain uh, illegality of what he was trying to do, I think, was staring him in the face. Why, do you expect other states, though, I mean, why not move those deadlines up to request these mail-in ballots and get them returned earlier? Is there, do you think it's, it's unfair for some people to be sending in ballots earlier than others? 
Well, there you need to talk to the legislatures and the governors in those states. I know that many states, like California, we're doing everything we can to accommodate our voters so that they can vote any number of ways, but they'll get their vote in on time. Uh, some legislatures have made it very difficult for governors who want to accommodate voters because of COVID-19 so that they can go ahead and submit their vote by mail. But it's been difficult because in some cases, uh, mainly Republican legislatures, for example, have been thwarting the efforts of Democratic governors, for example, to try to make it easier to get that ballot in, if you mail it, uh, get it in on time. And so yeah. what we have to do is sure that everyone is accommodated where possible and you keep the process as accountable as possible. One final question, since every California voter will now get a mail-in ballot. Uh, we moved into our house here in New Jersey three years ago, and I still received the mail-in ballots from the previous for the person who previously lived in them. There's nothing preventing me from filling it out and sending it in. Is that not a recipe for voter fraud? Well, there is something that's stopping you, Kelly, from sending it in, and the fact that you don't want to go to jail, uh, and the fact that we can uh, all those votes are recorded, <clears throat> and if you're not registered in a particular state and you cast a vote, you're likely going to go to jail. And so the, the, that's what keeps us honest, and that's why there is no record of active and uh, abundant uh, voter fraud in this, in this country because we have good mechanisms to provide for accountability. Uh, everybody moves, a lot of people move, and we make, take that into account. But what we don't have are records and documentation of massive fraud from people trying to vote when they should. Yeah, there's so much about this that we haven't experienced before. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, we really appreciate you joining us today to talk about these issues and your plans. Thank you for having me. Javier Becerra is the attorney general of the state of California. Still ahead, alcohol delivery service Drizzly is getting another round of funding. We're going to hear from the CEO about that next. And remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back in two. Welcome back to The Exchange. Big alcohol stocks continue to be under pressure as many bars and restaurants remain closed because of COVID. It's been a different story for alcohol delivery service Drizzly, which has seen its sales increase 350% this year. Frank Holland joins me now with more. Frank? Hey, good afternoon, Kelly. Online alcohol marketplace Drizzly announcing today it closed a $50 million Series C funding round. That money will be used to scale up its operations as consumers look to e-commerce to limit virus exposure while they buy their drinks. Now, investors include Tiger Global, which has a stake in TikTok parent company ByteDance, Avenir, a backer of Rihanna's clothing line, and the Wine and Spirits Wholesalers of America. U.S. alcohol sales were $250 billion last year. By 2025, Drizzly is forecasting as much as 25% of alcohol sales will be made online, compared to just about 2% today. CEO Corey Rellis says trends point to consumers continuing to use e-commerce even after the pandemic. The promise of e-commerce, larger selection, comparison pricing, the convenience of delivery within half an hour, and having retailer, retailers compete for the benefit of the end customer, that's what Drizzly can bring. And I think that, as a value proposition, is not going away. Currently, Drizzly's marketplace model captures just about 10% of online alcohol sales. It also competes with online giant Instacart. Rella says as bars and restaurant sales remain impacted by the virus, Drizzly provides alcohol companies crucial intellectual property. When you think about what e-commerce can do in terms of data and understanding exactly who your consumer is, what they like, and how that translates to the brands that you are selling, 
we can provide a level of depth there that cannot happen in the on-premise world. So when you get to do that, you start to think about, you know, as you go forward, what do your brands represent and how do you get them closer to the consumer? Drizzly will use the money raised today to support its online cannabis delivery business as well. It's called Lantern. It operates in Michigan and Massachusetts. The U.S. cannabis market, cannabis market was estimated to be about $56 billion this year before the pandemic. Rella says Drizzly is still trying to figure out if alcohol and cannabis should be marketed and even delivered together. Back over to you. Is this like a parent's worst nightmare, Frank? <laughs> I don't know if it's a parent's worst nightmare. It might be actually a parent's dream. You can get alcohol and wine sent to your house instead of having to go out because your kids are learning from home and you're at home with them all day. Uh, that's a... That's one way to look at it. Frank Holland, thank you very much, sir. We appreciate it. That does it for The Exchange today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.